key objections that people have to the Christian faith. Uh, these are questions that people have that, we, that they may ask us at times if we talk with them about our belief in Christ. They may be uh, questions, doubts, objections where people say, you know what, what you believe, that can't be true. What about this? What about that? These may even be sources of doubt in our own minds that when we really examine ourselves, we wonder, okay, what is the truth on this matter? Today's big but that we're going to be looking at, this key objection is this. But what about all the errors and the contradictions in the Bible? It doesn't take long if you're talking with someone about your faith in Christ, or even if you're reading about stuff in the media or, or listening to the TV. It doesn't take long to hear people raise questions about whether or not the Bible is reliable. It's very common for people to say, you know what, there are so many errors and contradictions in the Bible. It was written so long ago. How can we have any confidence that the Bible is true or the Bible is reliable? For us as Christians, this is a central topic because our whole faith in God is based on the Bible. As I said, if, if you don't have to look very far in today's culture to hear people claiming that the Bible is not reliable. I think, for instance, of a book that came out a few years ago, The Da Vinci Code. It was a book, a work of fiction, but many people took it as a good source book for what they should believe about God and about the early church. And there are a lot of things in here that I think are embraced by popular culture, but they aren't quite accurate. Let me give you an example out of The Da Vinci Code of, of how the Bible was talked about in here, which I think gives a very accurate picture not of what the Bible is really about, but an accurate picture of what our culture believes. In the book, one of the characters says, The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not magically fall from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. So you hear these words from author Dan Brown uh, speaking about the Bible in ways that are not very flattering. Don't really raise a lot of trust in the Bible's reliability. It's a work of fiction, but still influenced many people, and it captures well the popular perception today of the Bible. Something that came around many years ago. We really don't know exactly what it originally said. Uh, it was a work of man, not of God. That was a work of fiction. Currently, I'm reading an interesting book. I don't honestly recommend it in some sense. It's called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is one of the most prominent and outspoken atheists in the world, one of the main proponents of evolution. It's an interesting book to read. I'm reading it mainly to learn more about um, the firsthand account of someone who believes very strongly in these things, in atheism and, and evolution, stuff like that. But in here, he has a section that I read a couple days ago on the Bible. It's very similar to what was written in the Da Vinci Code. But I want to read this to you because this is a New York Times bestseller. It's very, very influential, especially among scientists, those who have questions, uh, serious doubts about God. In here, he expresses doubt about the Bible. He said, Ever since the 19th century, scholarly theologians have made an overwhelming case that the Gospels are not reliable accounts of what happened in the history of the real world. All were written long after the death of Jesus, and also after the epistles of Paul, which mentioned almost none of the alleged facts of Jesus' life. All were then copied and recopied by fallible scribes who, in any case, had their own religious agendas. 
So this is a professor at Oxford, uh, highly renowned among many circles in today's culture, who's saying that there is an overwhelming case against the reliability of Scripture. So again, we don't have to look very far in our culture to see people questioning whether or not the Bible is really reliable. According to some of them, like Richard Dawkins, there's an overwhelming case saying it is not reliable. So this is a central question that we need to consider if we're looking at objections that people have to the Christian faith. Is the Bible really trustworthy? Is it a foundation that we can base our lives on? Or is it a book full of flaws and errors, merely a human work that we would be uh, best if we just cast it aside or at the very least pick and choose what we think is going to be beneficial for us? This is a key question. But this is a question that we're going to dive in today. Um, as we prepare ourselves to look at this topic of the Bible's reliability, please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you have chosen to communicate to us, specifically through Jesus Christ, but also through your word, the Bible. But Lord, we also recognize that the Bible is a source of much controversy today. Many different opinions are out there on whether or not the Bible is to be trusted. And I pray right now as we look at this topic that you will give us clarity and give us understanding, Lord, on, on your view of the Bible and how we ought to view the Bible in our own lives. And we pray for your guidance here in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, you don't have to be talking very long with someone about the content of the Bible to find that they raise questions about, well, what about all those errors in the Bible? What about the contradictions? I have one hint for you. Anytime someone asks you, what about all those errors and all those contradictions? Ask a question of them first before you say anything else. Ask them, so what errors are you thinking of? Can you name some errors that really grab your attention and make you not believe the Bible? I found in asking this question to many, many different people through the years, it is extremely rare to find someone, especially an ordinary uh, person out in the streets who you know in your job, in your school, uh, in your neighborhood, to find someone who can actually point to errors and contradictions in the Bible. They've probably heard it from other people. Maybe they've heard it from friends, heard it on TV, read it in books. But they themselves can't point to a single error or contradiction in the Bible. They've just heard it and adopted that view for themselves. And so many people claim to doubt the Bible, having never really studied it for themselves. They, they, they know they don't want to believe it, but they don't know exactly why. They don't have a foundation for it. You know what? I think that Christians are oftentimes the same way. We know what we believe, at least to a significant degree, but we don't always know why we believe it. This is true in terms of who is Jesus? We say he's fully God, fully man. Where can we support that in the Bible? How about God being a trinity, three in one? How can we support that from the Bible if we're pushed a little bit? How about the Bible? I mean, does it have contradictions and errors? Where would we go if we want to try to have a a reasonable conversation about this. As I said, I think many of us Christians can't even answer these questions very well. So I want to give us a pop quiz this morning. Uh, I invite you to pull out your pens and your papers. Uh, actually, just your bulletin, grab a writing utensil. We're not going to grade you specifically. No one else is going to see your answers unless you choose to share them. But I want to have a brief pop quiz to see if you can identify some of the basics about the Bible, which can point to its reliability. Uh, so just, like I said, grab a sheet of paper, something you write on. I have four questions on this pop quiz. They're going to be multiple choice, which is probably a reason for rejoicing, so you don't have to make up answers out of thin air. 
But multiple choice, four questions. Just write down uh, the number of the question along with A, B, C, or D. Um, and then we'll re- revisit these questions a little bit later. Here's the first question on this pop quiz. The books of the New Testament were written during what time frame? What time frame? A, between 30 and 60 A.D. B, between 50 and 90 A.D. C, somewhere in the range of 150 to 300 A.D. Or D, they were discovered in the form of golden tablets in 125 A.D. Which one of these do you think it is? Which time frame was the New Testament written during? A, B, C, or D? Number two, the earliest fragment of the New Testament is from A, 125 A.D., B, 325 A.D., C, 525, or D, about 1000 A.D. We're talking about a little fragment of, of, of papyrus or of, of a scroll that contained a portion of the New Testament. What is our earliest fragment from that has been discovered so far? Number three, how many copies of the New Testament, either portions or the entire New Testament, do we have from the first few hundred years after it was written? So we're looking at copies of the New Testament that have been written down from the first few hundred years. Is it A, about 50 copies? B, about 500? C, about 5,000? Or D, about 50,000? How many copies of the New Testament do you think we have Um, that have been discovered from the first few hundred years after it was written. All right, now D, or uh, not D, but number four. Today's English Bibles are translated primarily from what language or languages? So what, what, what are today's English Bibles translated from? A, Latin. B, Hebrew and Greek. C, Amharic and Babylonian. Or D, Translated from the King James Version. A, B, C, or D. As I said, we're going to come back to these uh, quiz questions a little bit later. You will find out if you have correct answers or not. Uh, But we're going to revisit it a little bit later. But each one of these questions are quite significant in terms of is the Bible really reliable or not, as we will see as we uh, go through today. As I said, we've seen many different challenges and accusations against the reliability of Scripture. In essence, people are putting Scripture on trial and saying, you know what, it doesn't stack up. But we live in America where we have a right to a fair trial. And I believe that we should put the Bible on trial and ask, can it really stand up to scrutiny? Is it really trustworthy or not? There's a claim uh, that the Bible always tells the truth. That's something I personally believe in. That's what I want to set out today as the Bible's defense attorney to try to prove. But I believe that the Bible always does tell the truth. And today, as we're putting the Bible on trial, there are going to be three key questions that we're going to examine to try to understand if the Bible really does always tell the truth or not. The first question that we're going to be looking at today is this. Is the Bible's author trustworthy? You know, when you're evaluating any book, Uh, in terms of how accurate it is, how helpful it is, how important it is. It's good to ask, okay, who is the author of that? Are they someone who should be respected in their particular field? So who is the Bible's author? And this is a question that can be kind of challenging at times. Because in one sense, it could be said, at least according to the Scripture's own testimony, that the Bible's author is God. 
the Word of God, God's Word. On the other hand, though, we know that the Bible has human authors as well. So how does that work? Well, there's a concept known as dual authorship, where it's really God working and speaking through human authors, through their own language, through their own styles, through their own personalities, to record God's words in human language. So that's really the concept of dual authorship that, that is behind Scripture, at least how Scripture sees itself. And what this is called, is God's, God is working through people, is called the inspiration of Scripture, where God is inspiring human authors to write his own words. We see a glimpse of in the inspiration of Scripture, for instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 16, Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, which is basically saying everything that's in here in the Bible, all Scripture, is God's words. God breathes it out. It comes directly from Him. Yet, yeah, you may be wondering, okay, with this dual authorship thing, we see Second Timothy, we believe that's written by Paul. How does that work if it's God speaking, but it's the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter? How does that really work? Well, we see a glimpse of this as well in Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, it's talking specifically about prophecy here, but these prophecies um, have a lot of connection with how Scripture was recorded because many of the people who wrote Scripture were, in fact, prophets. They were, I would say they all, in some sense, were in terms of speaking God's words to the world. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see here the process that God used, according to Scripture, to inspire Scripture. That God, uh, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This idea of being carried along is actually a nautical term. Of, it's, it's very similar to wind carrying along a sailboat, providing power for the sailboat, enabling that sailboat to move forward. And this is the same picture that we have of how, how God inspired Scripture, that he came and carried along the writers of Scripture, guiding them, propelling them forward, showing them exactly how they should write and what they should write in their own personalities, though, to record God's very words. And we have some interesting evidence in Scripture of God speaking through humans, of, of this really being God's Word. One of the most convincing things for me is when I look in Old Testament quotes that are quoted in the New Testament. Sometimes those Old Testament things are written by a human, say by Moses or by King David or by Isaiah or someone else. But then when we see these same passages quoted in the New Testament, we see that they're attributed not just to the human author, but also to God. An example of this is found in Acts chapter 4, where the apostles are praying to God, and we see in their prayer that they're going to quote from a psalm that's written by David, but then they attribute it ultimately to God. I'm going to start at the beginning of the prayer back in Acts 4, verse 24, where they pray, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then in this prayer, they quote from Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then they go on to quote more of the psalm. But there's nothing back in Psalm 2 that indicates this was God speaking. Specifically, it's called a Psalm of David. That David was, was the one who recorded that psalm. 
But then here in Acts chapter 4, we see the, the apostles ultimately attributing it not just to David, but specifically to God speaking through the Holy Spirit who is speaking through David. So it's God speaking. It's, God, it's God's words, but spoken through the human being, David. So that's a little picture of God inspiring Scripture, how it's God is the author ultimately, but then speaking through human authors as well. And so if God is really the, the author of Scripture, that should give us tremendous confidence in the reliability of Scripture. Because, for instance, in Psalm 119, verse 160, it says all God's words are true. God can't lie. God can't make a mistake. And so if God is the author of this, it should give us incredible confidence. Yet at the same time, many people still raise an objection. They say, well, yeah, you may say that the Scripture is written by God, but wasn't it written so long after Jesus actually was on earth, so long after the events took place, that it can't possibly be true? Or, or at least fabrications would have entered, errors would have entered along the way. This is an objection that's raised many times that was in both the Da Vinci Code and in the God Delusion, saying that the Bible was written so long after the events that there's no way that it's really trustworthy. Well, that points back to our quiz. Remember how the first question on our quiz was uh, the time period during which the books of the New Testament were written? Well, now we get a chance to see if we were right or not. So we, we have A, B, C, or D. What was the time frame during which the Bible, the New Testament specifically, was written? It's B. About 50 to 90 A.D. was the time frame during which the New Testament was written. Now, you will definitely find some, some skeptical people who will say, you know what, there's no way that's true. It was definitely written hundred, several hundred years later. But I think there is solid evidence from outside of Scripture that the Bible, specifically we're talking about the New Testament, was written during that time frame in the first century from about 50 to 90 A.D. Let me give you a few, um, a few, a few pieces of evidence for this. One is when we look at these fragments of the New Testament that are available. Uh, we had this quiz question, second quiz question, on when the earliest fragments of the New Testament were from. The answer is A, about 125 A.D. We have a, a little fragment of the Gospel of John. That it's clearly got the Gospel of John is dated from about 125 A.D., and so for those like Dan Brown or Richard Dawkins who claim that the Bible was written several hundred years later, that the Gospels were written a long time after Jesus lived, that doesn't work when you see that there are fragments of these Gospels around at least by 125 A.D., if not before. And so, so we see that the fragments of the Bible that we have indicate that the Bible is written quite early. That, that it, and that early date gives a lot of reliability to it. Also, we see quotes uh, from early church leaders in which they quote, you know, to quote from or refer to the books of the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples. One was named Clement, who wrote a letter to the church in Corinth in Greece in around 96 AD. But he quoted during that letter from, or didn't quote, but he referred to around 11 different New Testament books. He couldn't have referred to them if they weren't yet written. But that gives a lot of credibility to an early writing of the New Testament. Polycarp, uh, a bishop over there in the early church, 
Uh, in 11080, he wrote a letter to Philippi. And in that letter, he quoted from Acts, from 1 Peter, from Ephesians, and from Matthew. And then through a number of other letters he wrote through the years, he quoted from or referred to 18 different New Testament books. Ignatius, who wrote um, a handful of letters around a little after 100 AD, around 108 AD, quoted from nearly all of the books that are currently in our New Testament. So to me, this gives a lot of credibility to the Bible being written very near to the events that they're recording. And so it blows out of the water those who are skeptical about, um, about whether or not the Bible is really written early. And so the fact that the Bible was written by the human authors pretty close to the events gives a lot of credibility to the fact that it is reliable. And you point as well to that dual authorship of how is God speaking through them. It gives us a lot of reason to trust the author of Scripture. It shows that the Bible's author is trustworthy. So that's the first question that we're asking of the Bible in this trial of the Bible to see if it is trustworthy. The second question is this. Has the Bible changed over time? Has the Bible changed over time? We've been saying that originally when the Bible was written a long time ago, it was trustworthy. It was the words of God through the, the voice of humans. But is it really trustworthy now because many people think that the Bible was passed down through the generations like the game of telephone that children pl- play. You heard in the book how they were both talking about how it's been copied and recopied, translated and retranslated. If it's, if it's like this, personally, I don't know if I would really trust in the Bible. If it was passed down like that of just copy upon copy upon copy through the generations. You think about that game of telephone. Basically, what it would be is if I start up here with Marty and I whisper something into Marty's ear and it's something along the lines of, hey, Marty, next week I'm, I'm going to come into the sanctuary for the sermon. I'm going to be riding a horse while eating pizza, pepperoni pizza, and I'm going to be wearing a green suit. Pass that on. Now, if he pat, you don't need to. <laughs> but if Marty passed that on, he went it back through the rows all the way back up here to Pastor David. What do you think the message would be once it got up here? It would probably be something like, Pastor David is awesome, you should double his salary. <laughs> it would probably be that because you changed it. <laughs> I doubt it would be like that until it got right here. <laughs> but, but the reality is, as we all know, in the game of telephone, the message radically changes as it goes through the people, as it goes through multiple generations of people. And if that's the way the Bible was passed down, I agree that there would be a lot of, of problems with our Bibles that we have today. That is a common belief that the Bible started out written in some original language, and then a little while later it was translated into, say, Latin, and then in 1611 it was translated into the King James Version, into English, and then now we have our Bibles. But that's a fallacy. That's not how it really works. It's not like the game of telephone. What really happens is that when people are translating the Bible for us today, they go as far back as possible to the earliest possible copies of the New Testament or the Old Testament to try to understand what was originally there. That points us to questions three and four on our quiz. Question three was how many copies of the New Testament, either portions or or in its entirety, do we have from the first few hundred years after it was written? Is it 50, 500, 5,000, or 50,000? 
Well, the answer is C. About 50,000, not 50, about 5,000 copies of the New Testament, either in fragments or the whole thing or whole books, are available from within the first few hundred years after the time of Christ. That gives scholars a massive amount of data to work with in trying to reconstruct what was in the original Bible when God first inspired John or Paul or Peter or Isaiah or Moses to write down his words. Now, question four on our quiz. Today's English Bibles are translated primarily from what language or languages? The answer is B, Hebrew and Greek. Now, I said primarily because there is a third language that contains a little bit of, of what's in the Bible, and that's uh, Aramaic. There's a little bit of Aramaic, which is closely related to Hebrew. Amharic is the current language spoken in Egypt. And the King James Version is just the King James Version. We don't really use the King James Version to base our current translations off of. And scholars go back as far as they can to the original manuscripts written in Greek and in Hebrew. And you may still be wondering, okay, how does that really work? How do they take these 5,000 copies and fragments and, and pieces and books from a long time ago and piece together what they think was originally there? Well, it's a process that is called textual criticism. Textual criticism, because it has the word criticism and it sounds kind of negative, but it's not necessarily negative. It really means critiquing wh what was originally there, critiquing all this data, sifting through it, trying to discern what was in the part, or what was in the original Bible. There are a number of principles that scholars follow as they're trying to determine what was in the original Bible. For instance, one of the principles is that typically the older the manuscript is, the more reliable it probably is. Because it's had less time to have errors enter in or scribal changes or something like that. So the older it is, probably the more reliable it is. Another principle that scholars use is that typically the shorter readings, if you have a, a place where you have multiple different um, readings of one particular verse or something, typically the shorter readings are more reliable. Because the tendency is that people add to what is there in order to try to clarify it a little bit or to add their own comments in. And so the shorter readings are typically better. Also, it's typically seen that the harder readings are better, the things that may not make sense right away, but what oftentimes happens is that uh, without really trying or without wanting to confuse God's word, scribes would, would try to, they might just change a word a little bit just to try to make it a little bit easier to understand or make it fit with, with a similar passage in another context to make it fit seamlessly rather than having something that's a little bit challenging to, to grasp or challenging to understand. And so those are a few of the principles that scholars use when trying to, to determine what was in the original Bible. But keep in mind, they have a vast array of data to work from. And the vast majority of our Bible has practically no question over whether or not this was original. They use these, uh, these, these efforts of textual criticism in the areas where there is a little bit of question. Okay, this manuscript says this, this says this, this one's like that first one. Which one's right? And when it all comes down to it, there is very little of our Bible it really is in question over what was originally there. Say you take the New Testament, which in our copies of the Bible are probably two or three hundred pages long. If you were to put together all of the parts of the New Testament that have questions over what was originally there, if you put it all together, it would really only take up about one page 
of our New Testament out of two, three hundred pages. And those, those questionable parts really don't make any difference on our theology or our beliefs. They're usually little things like, okay, should that be a year or an hour right there? Okay, is the word order this or is it that? Should this say Jesus or should it say God? They're, they're relatively small things. Um, they just entered in through the years, and there are a few things that we really aren't positive about. But it's not like the scholars are trying to hide those things from us either, because in most of our Bibles today, if you look at the footnotes at the bottom, occasionally you'll see a place where it says, some manuscripts say, and then it says what they say. So they aren't trying to hide it from us, but if you flip through your Bible, you'll see, you know what, really? For as long as the Bible is, there really are very few places where there's, there are those questions over what's there. And like I said, it's usually just a word here or there that ultimately doesn't make that much of a difference. So our Bible is really quite reliable, very reliable, that we have today in terms of how it would have uh, correlated with what was originally written a long time ago. So our final question for today as the Bible's on trial is this. Is the Bible a consistent witness? Is it a consistent witness? When you think about someone who's on the witness stand during a trial, one of the things that opposing lawyers will oftentimes try to do to discredit their testimony is to catch them in some sort of a contradiction or error, even if the contradiction or error has little to do with their actual testimony that, that's relating directly to the trial. What they want to do is try to establish that, you know what, this person really can't be trusted because they have these errors or contradictions in what they're saying. And this is what some skeptics try to do. They try to raise questions about the Bible saying, well, what about those errors? Even the little things like history or those errors in, in how this works over here in this quotation right here. Because they think if they can get a, a foot in the door and making it out a little part of Scripture, then that throws all of Scripture into serious doubt. So we have this question over whether or not there are these little errors and contradictions in the Bible, which may call the whole thing into doubt. Oftentimes when people ask me, what about all those errors and contradictions in the Bible? We can't possibly trust this thing. After I ask them that question of, well, what errors do you have in mind? And they can't answer any. Sometimes, just for sake of conversation, I will suggest a few of my own. Not that I think are legitimate errors, but I'll make a few suggestions of the things that are oftentimes raised when people have questions about the reliability of Scripture. And this morning, I'd like to point to a few different categories that people may, um, that you may hear from time to time when people are talking about errors and contradictions in the Bible. One category is errors in quotations. Uh, there are quotes in the Bible of something that someone said or from the Old Testament. People say, you know what? That, that quote, there's something wrong with that. One of the classic examples of this is a sign that was over Jesus' cross when he was being crucified. All four Gospels talk about a sign over his cross. All four Gospels record something that was written on that sign. But none of the four are exactly the same. For instance, in Matthew, uh, he records the sign as saying, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In Mark, simply says, the King of the Jews. In Luke, it says, this is the King of the Jews. And then in John, uh, John records the sign as saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And so we see each one of those signs, they're very similar, but there are little differences. And so some skeptics will say, you know what? That shows that they really didn't know what they were talking about there. there there's some sort of error, some sort of contradiction 
in their recording of what was really on that sign. Now, in my mind, it's pretty tough to say that's really a contradiction or an error. One of the things we need to remember, there's something known as paraphrasing, where when you paraphrase something, it's not a direct quote. You may change the words a little bit, but, but the basic gist is still there. It's not an error. It's just a paraphrase. Think about if you have a mother with two children, say a son and a daughter. The daughter's inside. The mother is preparing supper and says to her daughter, uh, daughter, will you go out and tell your brother that he needs to come in in a minute and wash up for dinner? Dinner's about ready. So the daughter goes outside and tells her brother, hey, you, mom says you need to come in in a minute. And the, the son says, okay, I'll be in in just a couple of minutes. I need to put my toys back in the box and put the box in the garage. And the daughter goes back in and relays that to her mom, saying, he said he'll be in here uh, pretty soon. Is that an error? I mean, did she lie about what her brother said? No, not really. All she did was paraphrase what, what he said. Yeah, she didn't say that I'll be in in a couple minutes or in two minutes. She didn't say that he's putting his toys back in the box and putting the box in the garage. But she still accurately represented what he was doing, that he's going to be in shortly. It's a paraphrase. And this is the case in many places in the Bible where people say, you know what, there's an error in the quotation here because it's an issue of paraphrasing or, or just reporting part of it but not the whole thing, which is perfectly, perfectly acceptable. And we also have to remember with these signs that were on the cross that John says they were in three different languages. So realistically, we don't know exactly which language each of these uh, gospel writers was quoting from. So it's possible the different languages re recorded slightly different things. And so, so to me, this is not an issue of error or contradiction. It's just something that common sense says, you know what, that's the way it works sometimes in terms of paraphrasing. Also, sometimes you see Old Testament passages quoted in the New Testament. People say, well, they changed a couple words there. That can't be right. That must be an error in there. Well, again, we have the issue of paraphrasing. Paraphrasing, in my mind, is perfectly allowable. And also, you have to realize that back then, they didn't have quotation marks in Greek or in Hebrew. And so it's tough to know, were they really trying to quote verbatim, or were they simply paraphrasing what was there? So in my mind, these, these errors and quotations really aren't errors. It just takes a little common sense to try to figure out how does this work out. Another category where people like to raise objections is errors in recording events. Um, one classic example of this is how many angels were at Jesus' tomb after his resurrection. So two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, say that there was one. Or they mention an, an angel. And then Luke and John mentioned that there were two angels. So the question is, okay, was there one angel or were there two angels? To me, it seems like that's a matter of, again, just uh, ma uh, the first Matthew and Mark did not say that there was one and only one angel. They only mentioned one angel. To me, it's very possible. And actually, I fully believe that there were two angels there. It's just that Matthew and Mark only focused on that one. Perhaps because that one was doing most of the speaking or that one was doing most of the work there at the tomb. It's not a contradiction. It's just that they focus on different things in their reports. Imagine after church today that I go home and Shelly asks me over lunch, so do you have any interesting conversations with people after church today? And I tell her, yeah, I, I was talking with this guy. I met him before. We had a really good conversation, really enjoyed it. 
maybe I mentioned one other conversation. Is it an error or a contradiction, or am I lying if I don't tell her about every single conversation I had? No. I'm not, it's not even a case of trying to hide something from her. It's just a case of I don't necessarily, necessarily report every single little thing that happens. It's the same thing in this reporting of how many angels were at the tomb. It's just a matter of a couple of them decide to mention more. A couple of the um, gospel writers choose just to mention the one that they think was the main one to focus on. One of the other topics in terms of errors in recording events was how did Judas die? Matthew records that Judas died by hanging himself. He hung himself and then he died. And then the book of Acts in chapter 1 says that Judas fell headlong into a field and his, he burst open and his intestines fell out. So on one hand, many people say, okay, that seems to be a contradiction right there. How does that really work if Jesus hanged himself but then he fell and his intestines burst open? That is a bit of a challenging question, but I think there is a possible explanation which shows, you know what, it doesn't have to be a contradiction. We all know exactly what happened there, but there is a possible explanation. Let me give you one such possible explanation. Imagine that Judas, in his grief after Jesus was betrayed, was crucified, he went out into this field to hang himself. He found a tree that was hanging over a bit of a cliff, so that way it would be easy. He would just tie the rope up to the tree around his neck, and then you just jump off uh, this cliff or this ledge in order to commit suicide. And then as he jumped, either the rope broke or that limb broke, and his body fell down and started rolling down the cliff. I don't, have to, I don't really want to go into a lot of gory details this morning, but you can imagine what sharp rocks can do to a body that's flailing down the cliff. I think that's one possible and very plausible solution to this challenge. I don't think it's a direct contradiction. I think it's just something where we don't know all the details, but there are definite, definite possibilities that show it isn't necessarily an error or a contradiction. The final category of, um, of errors and contradictions that people like to try to raise is the issue of historical fallacies, where people say that this certain event or this certain person or this certain uh, place really doesn't exist. It's just, it's just made up in the Bible. It's not true. But one of the things that archaeology has shown us is that there have been many of those things where skeptics raise these questions and say, you know what, this, is, this shows the Bible is not true. But then archaeology at some later point shows, you know what, the Bible is true. One example of this is Pontius Pilate, uh, the, the, the Roman official who uh, sentenced Jesus to death. For many years, people said Pontius Pilate isn't real. We don't have any record of him outside the Bible. And then not that long ago, while people were digging up some ruins, they found a cornerstone. They had an inscription from Pontius Pilate on it. That's no longer seen as an error or contradiction. Another one is the Hittites, uh, people in the Old Testament. They were mentioned dozens of times. For many years, skeptics said, you know what? The Hittites, they never lived. It's just a, a Bible fallacy. Well, and then in the late 1800s, in modern-day Turkey, uh, there was a library discovered that was found out to be the Hittite Library. Again, that's no longer seen as an error or contradiction, even though it was for a while. A final one, which people raise quite a bit, is Herod's uh, decree to, to have a massacre or killing of all the boys under two living in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. It's true that we don't have any record of this outside of the Bible, and, and to our minds it seems incomprehensible that something that heinous could not be recorded anywhere else. 
But then we have to understand the character of Herod. Herod, especially later in life, became very insecure. And he was very bloodthirsty, and he did not hesitate to kill anyone who he felt threatened by in terms of his kingship. We have record that Herod even put his own wife and two sons to death because he felt they threatened his kingship. He put members of his high court to death for the same reason. It's not a super surprise to me that, that something, especially that's a relatively small event in Bethlehem, is not recorded when, when he has so much else going on in his life. You have to keep in mind, Bethlehem is a very small town back then. The number of boys under two years old in Bethlehem at that point probably didn't number more than 10 or 12, if that. And so it's not, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a terrible crime, but it doesn't surprise me that much that it's not recorded anywhere else. I don't think that's an absolute um, reason to disbelieve the Bible or to believe that the Bible has errors and contradictions. So to me, I can't see anything in Scripture that points to the Bible having errors and contradictions. To me, when we put it on trial, it seems like the Bible is a very consistent witness and that the author of Scripture is very reliable. And that the Bible that we have today is as reliable as the first Bibles that were published back in the first century. And so I come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, back to this passage on the inspiration of Scripture, where Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. My prayer is that if we are people who see the Bible as being trustworthy, well, one, that we'd be able to defend that to others, but two, that we'd be people who would not just say the Bible's great, but that we'd be bringing it into our own lives, that we'd be applying it, that we'd be getting to know it better. I've had conversations with people here at Freedom's even in the last few weeks who recently have started reading the Bible on a regular basis, even just 10 minutes a day. And they talk about how that is transforming their walks with God. I've seen that to be true in my own life as well. I want to encourage us, find a way to get the Bible into our lives. If it's really the authoritative guidebook, we would be foolish to do anything else. So, so the Bible is trustworthy. And we can place our whole trust in what God has said through it about our relationship with Him. In just a moment, the ushers are going to come forward for this morning's offering. And as they do so, I'd like to pray for us. Our Father, we thank You that You've communicated to us through Your Word. That You give us a reliable guidebook 